welcome to this episode of the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. Today I'm speaking with Sally Goddard Blythe. Sally is the author of seven books and other published papers on child development and neurodevelopmental factors in specific learning difficulties. Sally has lectured on the role of infant reflexes in development and later learning problems to many groups throughout Europe, including to a working party on child well-being at the European Parliament in Brussels and in different parts of the United States. Sally is also director at the INPP, the Institute of Neurophysiological Psychology, which was established as a private research, clinical, and training organization in 1975 dedicated to the development of assessment procedures to identifying underlying physical factors and specific learning difficulties and to the development of effective remediation programs, including the INPP screening test and developmental movement program for use in schools. Sally, can you hear me? I can. Sally, I am beyond excited to have you on the show because I have been following your work. Like I, I, I spoke to you one time before this, I've been sp- following your work before I even went to school for my doctorate. Like, <laughs> so to me, I, I've been like as close to a groupie as you can get because I literally have known about you and your important work for so long. So for me, I am just like beside myself that get, I get to connect with you. So thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Garcia, for inviting me. You're making me feel very old if you knew about all of this before you, you left school. <laughs> I, it, it, it's obviously certainly not, not the case, but it's like <laughs> what you've done is just permanent. It's been uh, a factor in the way we help people and the way we approach our patients. Um, and it's one of the things that we teach about at the Care Institute, having a, a, a complete neurophysiological model for helping patients and and what you do is a component of that and not enough people recognize its importance so i appreciate the work that you've done and this is why we actually mention you and talk about your work and teach your work as well because it is that important so i'm hoping what will happen from this podcast is that we're going to open even more clinicians eyes to the value of your work and your contribution to healthcare so more doctors can do it and in turn we could help more patients which and especially these young patients, I feel this type of work has a opportunity to have a huge impact on the world. This is what makes me excited about it because this, this work is that important. So wonderful. Maybe we need to explain to them why this is so important. So I'm going to ask you some questions, um, which I think will be important. What what has your work centered around? Like I know the answer, but if so, if you're new to somebody and they said, well, you know, what is Sally talking about? What is, why is Dr. Garcia saying what she does is so important and everybody needs to know about it? What do you say? What- well, I think you probably summarized it beautifully in the introduction, actually. We're looking at an underlying physical basis for the presenting symptoms of things like specific learning difficulties, underachievement, and specific emotional problems that we sometimes see in adults. So everybody is focused on trying to deal with the symptoms, and quite often they don't look at what might be underlying it in terms of the physical foundations that are needed to support life, living, learning, and so on. What I find interesting is I I think if somebody hears what you just said, they're not going, hold on one second. There's a physical manifestation for some of these neurological findings, right? So if you start making that connection, this is what your work is all centered around. Let me ask you, where did this all come from? Like who who discovered this? It comes from somewhere. 
Well, it was largely discovered by um, psychologist Peter Blythe, who um, for many years had been a consultant psychotherapist and hypnotherapist. And he was working with largely adult patients at the time, some of whom had had many, many types of therapy, the therapies that were available at the time. But despite having a really good intellectual understanding of why they had their problems, they seemed to be unable to um, respond to the therapy of choice. So they were, in effect, recidivists. And one of the common denominators he found in these individuals was that they seemed to be unable to relax sufficiently, either to enter hypnosis or to benefit from the other therapies that they were trying to use with them. So he developed a technique of rather than teaching people to relax is to build up the tension and build it up more and more until they found that um, somebody would spontaneously abreact and that um, feelings and memories that had not been available to consciousness would become flood, flooding to the surface. But the basis of that intervention was that he discovered there was a part of the body which he named the locus of control, an area where residual tension was always held. And that area of tension was what seemed to hold in the um, unacceptable emotions that hadn't being able to be brought to the surface before. So that was one area of what he was doing. That was like the preparatory ground, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another part, a few years later, he was invited to be a senior lecturer at a college of further education in the north of England, where he was asked to give several lectures on um, reading difficulties and specific learning difficulties. And in his sort of quest to try and find out a little bit more information, he discovered a very early book written by A.E. Tansley, in which the message of the book seemed to be, do not assume because a child looks normal and they have average or above average intelligence that they have all the equipment they need to um, cope with the demands of the classroom. So if you are working with a child with problems, start looking at, do their eyes um, follow a line of print properly? Can they readjust focus between different distances? Do they have the hand-eye coordination needed to write and so on? And so it was this sort of background in in psychosomatic medicine and then coming into learning difficulties that led him to start looking at a physical basis for underlying um, a physical basis underpinning the presentation of things like specific learning difficulties. So subsequently, together with a, a mature student, they started to go into schools and to look at things like patterns of motor development, eye movements, cross laterality, and that later on led them back to look at infant reflexes to see whether there was a correlation between these later problems of visual motor integration difficulties, cross-laterality and so on, and um, immature primitive reflexes that might be mechanically contributing to those other um, presenting symptoms. Wow. That's just part of the history that nobody gets to hear. Now, you're throwing a couple terms around in there, so I want to go over them. Uh, One term that I heard of there was primitive reflex. Another term was uh, cross-laterality. Would you mind kind of Uh, explaining what those mean? Okay, so primitive reflexes are a specific group of reflexes. There are many reflexes present in the developing child. But these start to emerge during life in the womb from about nine weeks after conception. They should get stronger throughout a normal pregnancy so that in a baby born at full term at 40 weeks, those primitive reflexes are active and ready to help the child survive the first few weeks and months of life. But as connections to higher centers in the brain develop, which they do very quickly in the first six months of life, increasingly higher centers take over the functions of those lower responses. And so the um, higher centers take overall control and inhibit 
the primitive reflexes in the brain stem. So they never entirely desert us. They remain active so that if there was accident or injury at any time to higher centers, potentially those primitive reflexes might be released or disinhibited as a final protective function. But in normal development, they should gradually be put to sleep in that first six months and replaced or transformed into postural reactions, which collectively give a child eventually good control, automatic control of balance, posture and coordination in a gravity-based environment. So that's the primitive reflexes. Cross-laterality is a term used to describe um, when there is a lack of consistent preferred side in functioning in a child above seven to eight years of age. So the general consensus is, although many children will develop what's called unilaterality, one-sided functioning before seven to eight years of age, it's not necessarily abnormal if they don't. So when we're talking about unilaterality of functioning, we mean that if somebody is right-handed, ideally they should be right-handed for the majority of tasks, right foot preferred, right-eyed at far distance, right-eyed at near distance, and right ear preferred. And if they're left-handed, they should be consistently left-sided with the possible exception of ear advantage because sometimes having a right ear advantage can actually be better for processing um, sounds to the language centers in the brain. Wow, this is, this is great. So all these, you know, understanding these concepts, why, why does it matter to clinicians? Like if you understand what a primitive reflex is and you understand the mechanism that they're there as an infant and then as the brain develops, you inhibit it, right? Uh, you know, anybody who studies with a caricature will know that as the brain develops, it's a, most often an inhibitory uh, control mechanism. Like it inhibits the structures below it, right? So as your brain develops, you should be able to inhibit reflexes. You mm. know that. Um, but why does this information matter to a clinician if you know how to recognize this stuff? What is it really telling us? It, it provides signposts of maturity or immaturity in the functioning of the central nervous system of the older individual. So if you know the times at which primitive reflexes should be active and when they should become inhibited, similarly with postural reactions. So primitive reflexes we know are largely active up to six months of age. The next group of reflexes that develop from birth onwards, the postural's, they can take up to three and a half years of age to develop. So after three and a half years of age, in theory, we should be able to test the primitive and postural reflex status of a child and almost have a window into the functioning of the central nervous system of that child. So if those reflexes are commensurate with age expectations, then everything is absolutely fine. But if you have a cluster, not just one or two, but a cluster of underdeveloped postural reactions, and active primitive reflexes, it is showing you that there is an immaturity in the functioning of that system. Right. So you said signpost. That's like a, a signal that something may be up, that something requires more investigation. So I guess a question you probably hear all the time is, you know, is the presence of these primitive reflexes, is it a bad thing? Right. I mean, <laughs> it depends when you're looking at <laughs> so it's not a bad thing during the period in normal development when they should be active but it can become an impedance to higher related skills if they persist beyond that time um, and even if they do they are not necessarily the primary cause of the dysfunction but they will cause a mechanical problem in associated skills okay all right so we know that if if they're present when they're not supposed to be there, it's a signpost. So we investigate further, which then begs the question, let's say we find a couple of these things still present, and we'll talk about them specifically in a few minutes, because I, 
I have to know more. But what does a clinician do? Like if they see them there, what do you do about this primitive effort? primitive reflex? Well, first of all, it depends what type of clinician you are. (laughs) Um, I I would say there are three phases. The first is the ability to screen for them, to recognize that they do or do not persist. And if they persist, is then to see that they can be useful tools to point to what type and what developmental level of intervention is likely to be most useful to that particular child. So, for example, we know there are many different motor training programs around, all of which have value in different ways, but some are working at a higher developmental level than others. Mm -hmm. So if you apply a higher motor training program to someone who has a lot of very early primitive issues, you can teach those skills through motor training. But in our experience, they don't necessarily become an integrated function because you've started higher up than the child's actual level of ability. So by being able to identify those primitive reflexes, see at what stage in development that child is in certain areas of their functioning, it can help the clinician to target remediation more appropriately to the developmental needs of the individual rather than simply saying, well, let's go into a sweet shop. We've got lots of pretty jars of sweets with different motor training programs. That one looks the prettiest. Let's try that one and see if it works. It will work for some children, but it won't necessarily work for all. Right. So I guess it's about using the right tool for the right stage for that patient. Exactly. Right. Hmm. Um, you talked about different programs that are available out there, and I know you have one, uh, you, you have a training program, for, uh, and we'll talk about it, which is, by the way, very, very highly re- uh, respected. Um, but what are these other programs doing out there? What are these other clinicians doing out there? And then I guess I'll dovetail it. What, what's different about your methods, the INNP method, compared to what, what else is out there? Well, obviously, I can't speak for all, um, and I'm only familiar with a few. (laughs) Um, But generally speaking, I think many of the others tend to use more of a a neurological top-down approach from the cortex down to the brain stem. Um, And although any program is actually working at different brain levels, generally speaking, the IMPP program starts from the brain stem and works upwards. Interesting. You know, this is... uh... This is interesting to me because, uh, you know, in, in our world where we are teaching clinicians to use neurology as therapy, um, you know, leveraging uh, clinical neuroscience therapeutically, um, some clinicians find primitive reflexes and they'll do remediation using physical movement, which is kind of similar to what is seen. You could even look on YouTube and kind of find some of those types of exercises. Others do that top-down approach, meaning if they see a problem cortically in that patient, they will say, well, let me fix this and then find out what happens to the primitive reflex. Um, I've always been fascinated by the approach of different clinicians, and it makes me happy to hear you kind of talk about that. But I think it comes about back to that previous statement, right, of using the right tool for that patient depending on what particular their stage they're at because you may not be able to use a top-down approach for a person who's three years old possibly right i mean you just you just don't know no and as you say it depends on the age it depends on the abilities and it depends of the capacity for cortical inhibition that is present at that time or is there something lower down that's tripping that system so that it can't however much it tries it can't 
um, fully integrate or inhibit the reflexes. And this is where instead of using a cortical approach from the top down, you can say, well, sometimes the body can help to inform the brain and teach it how to do something um, which it can't naturally learn to do by itself. And having had that information put into it, it then seems to be able to do it from a higher level later on. Beautiful. Well, let's get into more about primitive reflexes. How, how many are there or how many tests are there for these primitive reflexes? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. I, didn't, I haven't counted how many primitive reflexes there are. There are many more than we actually assess for. Oh, wow. So when our assessment protocol was put together, it was done deliberately to target those reflexes that specifically um, affect the functioning of the vestibular system, um, are elicited as a result of ta tactile um, stimulation or our response to um, the movement of the head, the sort of tonic neck reflexes. So we were looking at those that have a, connect, a direct connection primarily to vestibular and postural functioning as a, and as a result of that have a secondary influence potentially on um, visual uh, ocular motor functioning and therefore visual perceptual performance. A good tongue twister. A good. Tongue twister. <laughs> so, it, so I guess there's many, right? But you guys picked very specific ones. Would you be able to just tell us the names of a few that you feel of are have that level of importance that you, which is why you chose them? So if we're looking at some of those that have a connection to the vestibular system, we'd be looking at the tonic labyrinthine reflex, the Moro reflex, the tonic neck reflexes, such as the asymmetrical and symmetrical tonic neck reflex. And in terms of some of the later postural reflexes, head writing reflexes. Okay, beautiful. So let's pick, um, let's pick, can you, can we just pick one and can you describe, I know it's difficult because this is in video and we're just, we're doing audio, but can you describe one of them, what maybe one of the what it would look like if somebody had this present? Um, it's probably the asymmetrical tonic neck reflex is the one that people can picture most easily. So yeah, in a newborn baby, if the head is turned, if it's lying supine and it's relaxed and the head is gently rotated to one side, you will see a degree of increased extensor tone in the arm and leg on the side to which the head is turned and slight increased flexor tone in the um, occipital limbs. When you bring the head back to the midline, it should all sort of balance out again and then turn the head to the other side and the same thing will probably happen. It doesn't happen every time you test for it, but um, it will in those first early days and weeks of life. Right. So at, at that stage, it should be there, right? When it's super early. It, exactly. Okay. There is debate in academic circles about whether it, it should ever be considered physiolo physiological or whether in fact it's a pathological pattern, but that's still a debate that's um, open for uh, conclusions, I think. <laughs> okay. And so at what age would that one, should that one be attenuated? Or About six months, six months of postnatal life in a baby born at full term. Okay. So that's what it looks like in an infant. If you were going to, let's say you were testing on this, and at what age would you still be testing this in a child, I guess? I mean, is, would you still be looking at this in a four or five-year-old? Could it, could it be present if there were some sort of... It depends on the position that you're testing it in, in as far as it, it, it responds, it's partly influenced by the degree of challenge given to the postural system in relation to gravity. So if you use the standard test for uh, testing an infant, whether in a supine position, mm -hmm. you may not see that reflex in a four to five year old child. 
if you put them in a quadruped position, so that's more of a challenge to the postural system, you may start to see flexion of the occipital arm when the head is rotated to one side. If you then put them into an upright standing position and test it in that position, you may see it more strongly still. And work done in the 1970s by a researcher called Parmentier <clears throat> said that, that you could still find the ATNR in children up to about, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it's up to about eight years of age in about 30% of the sample. So we're looking at degrees of this at different ages and in different testing positions. Wow, so this is really interesting to me because I've only learned, again, I, I've studied your work, but never as deeply. I mean, this is your life's work, so you know this inside and out. I, I've seen it tested in different positions, but you're, you're bringing to light uh, the effect of these different positions. Would, would you, since the test can be done to see if this is present, you, if, since you can do it in different positions, how do you pick which position to do it in? Uh, do, you mean, do you pick the one? Uh -huh. <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> clinically, we don't generally work with children until seven years of age and upwards. And one of the reasons for that, well, there's several reasons. One is that um, children younger than seven find it quite difficult to do the remediation exercises as slowly and as precisely as ideally they need to be done. And that means that you can start a child at seven and it takes 12 months, and you can start a child at six and it takes 18 months. So simply from a practical point of view, we don't usually start until seven. Um, also, there is a huge spurt of myelination that takes place linking up the um, the vestibular system, cerebellum and corpus callosum between six and a half and eight years of age. So you can sometimes assess a child at six and it looks as if there are major problems there. Wait till seven, seven and a half. And some of those have started to remiss simply as a result of development by itself. So we don't tend to start assessing children till after seven, seven and a half years of age when we can use that range of tests developmentally anyway. So we can use the standard test, we can use the quadruped test, and we can, we can use the erect test, but recognizing that there may be some um, normal deviation in that age group anyway. Sorry, I think I've lost the beginning of your question. I'll go back to no, it again. No, no, no. We're, we're just talking about re remediation and when you would use uh, which of the tests, which you actually did a, a great job. Okay, so it. yeah, so um, within that, starting at seven and a half years of age, we will use all four tests in all four positions. We'll use a standard test, we'll use two quadruped tests, and we'll use an erect test. And then we can actually see in which position or positions is it strongest, because if you have two reflexes present together, you have something like a symmetrical tonic neck reflex and asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. The score for the reflex ATNR being present may look stronger on the quadruped test because you have the influence of two reflexes acting together to make it difficult to maintain that position test position. So this is where it's an understanding not just of individual reflexes, but how they relate to one another that's really important in the assessment and the interpretation of the assessment of those results. Wow. What a beautiful, like I'm learning, I'm loving this. What a beautiful detail you just brought to light. That is incredible. Oh my goodness. I need to think about what you just said. That's beautiful. I'm like blown away right now. Uh, you, you make me want to learn more this is so great well before, I, I gotta stop gushing over this but let, let's talk about remediation what would remediation look like we know it's going to be physical in nature but the, uh, for the primitive reflex that we're talking about the one we started right we've named a few what does a remediation look like and again i i, I apologize i know i'm asking you to describe something uh physical with just words but can you give it a go for us 
Our program is largely but not exclusively based on the replication of normal infant movement patterns that should have been made in that first year of life at the time when the reflexes should naturally have become integrated. So the theory is that for some reason there have been slight gaps in the learning of motor pathways. And what, once you've done your assessment, you can see exactly where in early development those gaps probably were. And you can look at the movements that a child should have made at that time and you can put them in a second time to give the brain a second chance to make the connections that were not made the first time round. Right. So it's almost like uh, giving it the movements they missed to try to make the brain connections that they didn't maybe complete previously. Exactly. Yes. Beautiful. I get that. And I, I know some of the remediation exercises, um, which, but then you just taught me about all these different positions for the assessments. So are there variations in the remediation exercises as well? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is you're, you're teaching me here. You're, there's these layers of um, complexity to the assessments and in it, its beauty, are there layers of complexity to the remediation as well? <laughs> Yes, it's the hardest module of our training course to teach, I always say. I say you have a group of exercises that you can use, which are like the ingredients in a kitchen cupboard. Mm -hmm. But the way you put those ingredients together will be completely different for each individual child based on their individual assessment findings. And there is no single right answer that you can teach students at this stage of learning. All you can do is teach them what the exercises do and why different exercises in different combinations will be useful to solve or resolve the problem that you have in front of you. Uh, no, it makes, it makes sense. You're, you're correct. Uh, Sally, let me ask you, where do you see this, this work that I consider very important? Where do you see this work going in the future? Well, I would hope to see that this is recognized as a discipline and a system in its own right that can be used across different relevant disciplines from medicine to psychology to education. Because at the moment, the, the majority of children we see are what we call gray area children. They are children whose presenting problems are not quite bad enough for them to have received a formal medical diagnosis, mm -hmm. but neither do they have all the tools they need to be successful in the classroom. And educators, certainly in the United Kingdom, do not have enough time in their teacher training to have a, a, a full understanding of physical development to be able to um, assess these children or to provide effective remediation. And so they are often passed from parcel to post, really. They may see their family doctor to begin with who says, mm, yeah, well, I'll send you to a community pediatrician. And the community pediatrician says, mm, I'll pass you on to the physio and the OT and maybe a little bit of speech and language therapy. And a little bit of work is done for a few months or a few weeks. And then it drops off and the child improves for a short period of time and then it drops off again and then the teacher starts to say to the parent well actually your child is now one to two years behind where they should be maybe we should bring an educational psychologist in and the ed psych comes in and the ed psych does a wonderful job in assessing where that child is where its um, performance strengths and weaknesses are but no one has really looked at the underlying physical vocabulary to see whether it's in place to support the learning. So these are the children we see because they are falling through the net of existing professional services who should be either picking this up or being able to pass it on to one another so that they are um, helped at a much earlier stage in development. 
So that's the sort of first thing. Um, and then the set, so that's where our clinical practice sort of fills a gap. But in addition to that, because there is such a, a growing need, we believe, um, a number of years ago, I developed a very short screening test, which we could train teachers how to use in a one day training course. So it's a limited number of tests from our much longer clinical assessment. They can administer that in 15 minutes and hopefully identify which children in a class are potentially at risk of underachieving as a direct result of having signs of immaturity in the functioning of the central nervous system. So in this training, teachers are not taught how to be diagnosticians or even assessors, but simply to screen for. And then we have developed a general developmental movement program designed to be used in school with a class of children for 10 minutes a day, every day for one academic year under teacher supervision. We did not believe when we developed it that it would be as successful as the clinical program, but it has surprised me that it has been extraordinarily successful with a large number of children, with only those with the more severe problems perhaps not benefiting as much as we or they would like. And so, I, sorry. <laughs> on. Some of this has already been implemented in schools? Oh, yes, yes. We have published research based on the school results. Oh, that is that is beautiful because I'm hearing this and I'm going, oh, my goodness, this needs to be happening now. They need to have this in every school. So I'm glad at least some schools are, are forward thinking and doing this. I'm sorry to interrupt well, you, but I'm just well, I just recognize this is so important. Well, I think you've just said what was what I was going to say next, actually, which is what I would like to see in the future, is that this routine screening is implemented for every single child at the time of school entry, which in this country, ridiculously, is four to five years of age. It's far too young. But the time of school ent entry, for whatever that is in the country where you are, are living, again, probably at seven years of age and at 10 years of age, so that... These children can be identified at an early stage. Um, there's lots of sort of preschool preventative motor training programs that can be used in sort of five to six-year-olds. If they haven't done the job completely by seven, that's where the school program comes in. And if there are children there with more profound issues, but what we call very high scores on signs of neuromotor immaturity, in an ideal world, those children could be referred to a clinician to actually tailor an individual program for them. Right. And then that clinician would have a more specific, uh, slightly more complex screening program as well, which should then give them insight into what type of plan they would make for their patient, depending, again, on the age and the stage and development of that patient. Yes. So that's the, the type of level that we do clinically and we um, train practitioners to do. This is so it's. It's Sorry, gone. No, no, it's just saying this is beautiful. I mean, I, I love what you're creating. And, and, and again, I just recognize that it's so important to helping so many of these students um, have the best opportunity they possibly can. Um, Sally, I, I think, I, you know, I had so many questions for you. We went through all of them and I really appreciate your time because um, I know you're a very, very busy person. Um, but if people wanted to learn more about you, where do they find you? Well, you can go straight to our website, which is www i n for november p for papa p for papa dot org dot uk okay excellent sally thank you so much for your time today i think everybody's gonna really love this podcast i'm gonna take a look at all the emails i get afterwards and if people have more questions maybe we could have you back on the show again well thank you for inviting me and yes i'd be delighted thank you so much sally all right everybody thank you so much for joining us on another talk neuro to me podcast and we'll catch you next time
If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.